Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I'm Commander Shepard, and this is my favorite lore cast on the Citadel. Welcome to the Mass Effect Lorecast, the podcast where we explore the vast lore behind the Mass Effect games. Welcome back to the Mass Effect Lorecast. And I, I noticed last week, Sammy, you said Keyless Salai because uh, it's in I the did. show notes and Tom always skips it. <laughs> that is exactly what I said. I was like, I always write it and he skips it. So I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to say it. Yeah. So Keyless Salai, Specters. You sons of bitches. <laughs> um, anyway, welcome back. Man, I'm spunky today. Uh, I'm back from vacation and Sam, I'm excited because we're talking mortality stuff, right? Wait, wait. I'm looking at the show notes. We're not talking tally stuff. What's going on here? We're talking tally tangential stuff because we're taking a little bit of a departure to talk about a topic that's foundational to understanding her character in the later games in Mass Effect 2 and 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the migrant fleet. Oh, I thought it was going to be only having three digits on your hand. <laughs> how An do, entire how, episode. Someone who holds three digits, how do you hold up the peace sign? Oh, God. Is it, yeah. is it that? Is it just putting your thumbs down right. and then you're virtually... That's basically the same thing as us going like four. holding up four. Right. Or if you point at something, let's say you put down your thumb and your third finger, right? That's just the finger in the middle. Are you right. also flicking people off? <laughs> there we go. I don't know. I don't know. But we could do a whole episode about that. But instead, we're going to talk about the migrant fleet because that's probably more interesting. Yeah, we've discussed it in context before, you know, like here and there, uh, talked about it in episode 18 on the Koreans, talked about it other times too, uh, but it really deserves its own episode. So we're going to split this up into four different uh, sections. It's going to be, we're going to talk about the structure of the fleet, the technology, the culture, and the future of the fleet as well. Awesome. This sounds really cool. So let's, let's dig into this. Let's start with the structure. So first off, how many ships are there in the fleet? About 50,000, and they are almost all, they're holding almost all the remaining Koreans who fled of Rannoch after the Geth War. And I say almost all because there are Koreans, you know, who are out on their pilgrimage or never came back from their pilgrimage. They're just other Koreans on different places like Omega or the right. Citadel. And the fleet so, is flying over you right now. We can kind of hear it in the background if people are listening carefully. It is. Yeah, that is the migrant fleet, also known as the U.S. Navy's Blue Angels, who decided to uh, make a cameo on this podcast. And there's literally (laughs) nothing I can do with a jet that is so loud, it's setting off car alarms outside. (laughs) So So, a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, ambiance there for this episode. Uh, Just just pretend it's the engines of the fleet or something. There's going to be some persnickety listeners who, you know, type out angry reviews like he had terrible background noise, notwithstanding the fact that there's nothing I can do about. <laughs> do the they even Navy. edit this show at all? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's only right. so much I can do to soundproof my my room from F16s. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. So, uh, 50,000 ships. How many yes. actual Corians is that? 17 million aboard 50,000 ships. One of them's flying by right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's pretty and, big. We we talked about that number before and how that's I mean, it seems like a sizable number, but compared to like human numbers today, that's I mean, that's a very small fraction of, of say, even the United States. That's not that right. many people, really. It's well, it is to put them in space because yes. it's an average of about 340 people per ship. And keep in mind that not all ships are the same size. Some of them are pretty small, actually. So they are cramming people into these ships. And also keep in mind that 17 million Koreans is only 2% of what their population was on Rannoch. Right, which still wasn't wow. really that big. <laughs> You're getting all sorts of cool sound effects back there. Uh, which still really wasn't that that big. It's, it's smaller than you might assume for a world of people, right? But uh, 17 million lost out in space well not really lost in space but just migrating out in space is a lot of people take care of so so what else do we know about this this fleet so it's almost like an aircraft carrier strike group for those of you who are maritime aficionados or nautical uh What's another word? Nautical uh, aficionados also aficionados, advocates, um, (laughs) buffs in naval terms, in modern naval terms. It's like an aircraft carrier strike group because the entire flotilla is centered around protecting three large live ships at the center. If you know what I'm talking about, the live ships, it's those big round ones that have like the huge sphere as part of the ship. That's a live ship. And the names of those are and I'm going to butcher this first name. It's the Chime, Chayim. I, even C-H- I don't know how to pronounce this one. C H A Y Y M. So Chayim. Yes. Chayim. The Chayim, the Raya, and the Shellen. So those are the names of all of the live ships, and those are more very important. They're at the center. They're most protected because they are the ones who grow most of the food for the entire fleet. Yeah. So so that almost all important. the food comes from them. One of those crops, according to the wiki, and by the way, I'm not sure where the wiki got this detail. I haven't seen it anywhere else. Uh, it's called Kelvin, and it's a breed of blooming high-protein bioengineered celery. Hmm. Mm. Hmm. Okay. We have u- uniform reactions. Hmm. Mm, celery. I'd, mm. I'd eat it if I were starving, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, celery is not my favorite vegetable <laughs> by I'm a long shot. I'm guessing it's... It's got to be like very low overhead to produce a lot of it, you know, Yeah. Uh, because they're producing a lot and it probably doesn't require a lot of water. Uh, that's good also because Koreans are typically vegan because it's, it's probably too hard to raise and care for livestock with the limited space and resources aboard the fleet, right? Like you wouldn't want a ton of cows. Yeah, you can fit a lot more uh, crops into the same amount of space that you would need for livestock. Right, so. and, don't, and don't forget that the, this, this nutrient paste that they give to the Koreans who are going on pilgrimage, I don't think that it could potentially ever include animal products without spoiling faster. So I don't think they mm. want that nutrient paste to spoil faster. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. Yeah, meats don't last that long. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, well, we know if even one of those live ships were severely damaged, it could lead to starvation for millions of Koreans. So it is a big deal. And that's why they have the entire fleet really protecting them from any damage that could come toward them. And, and it just goes to show you that, that if one of those live ships are just severely damaged, if they lose, like, maybe, let's say, half the crops on one of them, millions could starve that's how thin the margin of error is that's how limited the resources are for them yeah that's not a lot of extra room extra wiggle room it's not like they can just land the ships on their planet and go get some food somewhere else they would have to negotiate that and that would be very difficult because they'd be in a very tight situation exactly and we've already talked about how they're treated like second-class citizens so Good luck. And if they're not coming to the bargaining table from a from a like a point of strength, you know, if they if then it's already working against them. Yeah. Just dire Um, need at that point. Yeah. 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 And I see people saying cured and dried meat can last. Yes, that's true. But again, where are they going to get that meat? 
uh, yeah. So, or or can I, you I cure and dry meat and then put it in a paste? I'm not sure that. I don't, I don't know how that Yikes. would work. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. If they're mass producing the paste and it's coming from the fleet, you know, uh, then probably isn't going to include meat just for you know practical reasons. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, meat Ab- paste. <laughs> Yuck. Yeah, I agree, Dave. Mm, yeah, meat paste. <laughs> All right. So out Go outside the live ships, there is the patrol fleet, which actually includes fighter jets uh, <laughs> and the heavy fleet, the civilian fleet and a special projects branch. Uh, the patrol fleet are like the military police. They handle navigation, internal security, some scouting missions and uh, crimes for the migrant fleet. They also handle disputes between ships within the fleet. So they're kind of like an law enforcement branch, uh, and it, it's mostly composed of light frigates and fighters. And interesting, I found this in the lore as well. They also secure the rear, giggity, mm, uh, mm, for the mm. heavy fleet during wartime. So they hold so up that heavy rear. They, they hold they up that safe. heavy rear okay. with their three fingers on both sides <laughs> okay all right <laughs> they gotta be very careful how they spread out the fingers <laughs> oh no um so they they for those of you who are mm, uh familiar with military technology terminology uh securing the rear means to basically hold down the fort while the heavy infantry and, and mechanized infantry what have you tries to invade and, and push forward on the front so you're basically keeping it so that uh, you don't get totally caught in the woods with your pants down if the enemy decides to flank you or try and get around. Uh, and that's what one of the points of the patrol fleet is. Uh, but the heavy fleet is the military arm. This is really the military of the fleet. It's got several heavy frigates and fighter squadrons as well. Every single ship that's in this fleet, the heavy fleet, is one that can handle combat for long periods of time. But I think that's also subjective because beggars can't be choosers in their circumstance. So long periods of time and being equipped for combat is probably up to the needs of the fleet at any given time. Yeah, based on the materials and the the ships that they have and the parts that they have and all of that. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's not to say that the other ships in this fleet are completely defenseless, uh, but it is notable that there are no dreadnoughts in the heavy fleet, which is the military arm. The dreadnoughts are like the big battleships. Right. And the reason why, well, they didn't sign the Treaty of Phryxen with the council. We talked about this a long time ago, Tom, the Treaty of Phryxen. It was like one of the very first episodes, I think. And that is the one that is modeled after the Treaty of Washington. I believe it was after World War One, or maybe shortly before World War One. Someone can fact check me on that one. Um, but it's the Treaty of Washington that stipulated which nations were allowed to build up their military with the amount of battleships. As for Mass Effect, it goes for dreadnoughts. And the rule is for every five dreadnoughts the Turians make, three are allowed for the Asari and the Salarians and any other council race, the humans later and one for all other citadel races. But the Corians don't have an embassy on the citadel, meaning they're technically not a citadel race, which would, you know, presumably mean that they're not allowed to make any, right? right. You can't make any dreadnoughts. Yeah. But mm. there's different interpretations of that. And this becomes a center of a foreign policy crisis during Mass Effect 3 that might have skidded by a lot of people, even dedicated longtime Mass Effect players. It, during Mass Effect 3, unless you're paying close attention to all of the uh, text-based lore that comes in, like emails, uh, you might have missed this because it's a, it's a uh, subject of a Diana Allers article. And during Mass Effect 3, while they're trying to prepare for a war with the Geth, the Corians salvaged enough materials to arm every single ship in the civilian fleet, the civilian fleet, mm-hmm. even the live ships, and they wanted to arm them with the same awesome cannon that Garrus is calibrating in Mass Effect 2, the Phanix cannon. Uh-huh. You remember so the they're... end of Mass Effect 2, it shoots that huge blue beam toward the collector? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so they're basically turning every ship in the fleet into at least having the same firepower as a Dreadnought, if not the same yep. mobility and armor and all of that stuff. That was the argument put forward by counselors on, on the Citadel Council who were uh, 
accusing them of violating the Treaty of Phyrexen, mm -hmm. that they were saying that you have essentially skyrocketed the number of technical dreadnoughts in your fleet. So when the Citadel condemns the, the migrant fleet's actions, Admiral Han Gerolvas Nima, who is, if I remember right off the top of my head, he is the leader of the heavy fleet, the military arm. He says, no, and I'm paraphrasing. He basically <laughs> says, no, you closed our embassy after the Geth were made, you know, so technically we're not even bound by that treaty. Right. These are all laws that the council and the embassy people have signed. Remember, you didn't include us in those, so we don't exactly. need to follow your rules. Exactly. Yeah. We, we, you guys closed our embassy. We right. didn't want to leave, but you closed our embassy and now we don't have to abide by your treaty because we're not getting any benefit from being a citadel right. species. So. Well, it's it's an interesting uh, ploy if and I don't know if this was the goal or not, but if their goal was to find a leverage to get back in, this could be a way to do that. It could be. You're right. But I think at this point in Mass Effect 3, they're more willing to ask for forgiveness than they are for permission. Right. Yeah, I don't think because that was the main goal. It, like the main goal was they need to protect themselves. So they need the firepower to do so. But there's a side benefit in that. It gives them leverage with the council if they need it. Yes, it does. So it definitely does. Yeah. Um, and keep in mind that there's a lot of different things happening all at once at this point in Mass Effect 3. The Reapers have invaded, of course, but it's also when the Corians are trying to prepare for war with the Geth. So it's almost like they're preparing for multiple different threats yeah. that could come from multiple angles. And there's additional threats that we're going to get into later in this episode uh, that a lot of players, I think, missed. And especially if you didn't read the books, I don't think that you understood how big this this threat I'll talk about later is. But let's talk more about the civilian fleet, because those were the ones getting armed. They are the civilian fleet, even though many civilian ships are arming themselves with ship to ship weapons. They are mostly converted cargo ships because think about the kind of ship that can hold the most amount of people. Yeah, you need to fit lots of people in their stuff. So cargo ship makes sense. Yes. Technically, the live ships are included in this and Corians uh, do go on like kind of two or three day rotations on volunteering aboard the live ships. I'm not sure how many people live on the live ships themselves, uh, but a huge bulk of the flotilla is in the civilian fleet. To put things in perspective, there's a few hundred dedicated Corian warships, but there are tens of thousands of civilian ships. Wow. OK. Yeah. So the bulk of the it makes sense the bulk of the population is in the bulk of the ships that hold the population <laughs> right yeah. exactly and 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 it also goes to show that there is a small fraction of Koreans who are dedicated to full-time military service uh, so speaking of civilians it is the civilian government the conclave that decides where this whole migrant fleet goes and it's kind of up to the admiralty the admiralty board uh, to get them there safely there's a final branch of the uh, one I, I mentioned special projects, but it's really only a handful of scientific research ships that are dedicated to research and development that will, uh, you know, quote unquote, improve the quality of life for the rest of the fleet. That is a very wide prerogative. Yeah, that could also include uh, arming them with weapons, I would imagine. <laughs> right. I mean, it could go from everything from developing a new geth anti geth gun to, to like developing a better system of flushing your viro suit from the poop that's in there like yeah yeah, <laughs> really? yeah. you know we're finding power power up output on the ships or uh, you know all sorts of different things yeah i can imagine that formulating so, new nutrient paste yeah so speaking of r&d what do we know about the technology for the fleet yeah so i don't know if i'd phrase it in the way of r&d because um, that is cool that they have those ships that do that, but it's on the whole, it's more like the migrant fleet is being held together with like the last threads of a ripped piece of duct tape, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, the technology of the live ships is undoubtedly impressive. I mean, you have three huge dome ships where there's all of this food think about how much food is required to feed 17 million people every day. Uh, and it's amazing that they can grow that much in space and it's and it's they've been effective for hundreds of years that much is impressive i'm not sure if those ships or anything like it existed before then in this cycle so that is very impressive that they've managed to do that it's an impressive feat of engineering but 
all of their ships, minus just a few, I think, are salvaged from other races and they're retrofitted and they're repaired as needed over time. And this is, again, over like 300 years, I think. So many of the ships are like jury rigged things that would probably not pass inspection in most navies or civilian flight agencies. You would not want to get on one of these ships. Yeah, I, I imagine moving into like an apartment complex in in the U.S. that's been around for seventy years. It just it's gonna feel lived in, and everything's gonna have been fixed at some point. And like now, imagine doing that in space for hundreds of years. Can you imagine how many electrical problems there would be? Yeah, yeah, or patches. You know, like oh crap, we gotta patch this wall because it's letting in, it's letting out air in the space. You know, like we can't just rebuild a new ship everything has to be just fixed on the fly it's like it's like uh when i worked for a startup uh, the analogy was we would keep revamping the product and it was like well we need to change the tires on the bus while the bus is still driving down the road (laughs) you know like that's literally what they're doing they're flying through space and they're literally upgrading and fixing things without being able to dock somewhere to do it it just has to keep working and man that's limiting Right. I mean, we we consider it an impressive feat in the Air Force or the Navy when they refuel ships that are currently flying. Right. You know, they have yeah. those fuel tankers. That's impressive. And it's a very small margin of error allowed for that. They are literally like repairing hull breaches in the vacuum of space yeah. while people still live on those ships and they don't really have much money to do it. So talk about improv. This is like improv on steroids and it's pretty impressive, but it's also like you ever see one of those cars driving down the street that's like has five different parts that are probably from different cars. Like yeah. the hood is one color, yeah. Yeah. the fender is a different color. It's like seeing one of those but like 50,000 of them right, right. <laughs> flying all together. Yeah. And it, Rob raises the, the, the states here in, in chat. Now is the ship still the same ship? It was a hundred repairs ago, like Theseus spaceship, right? Like how many, how many repairs until it's no longer actually the same ship? Uh, <laughs> I imagine the bulk of it's still the same ship. It's just been patched up and, and adjusted a lot over time. Probably a lot of them had to be retrofitted because they were from different races. So they probably changed things to make it more hospitable for the Corians aboard those ships. Yeah. Um, it also seems to be why there's very little naming themes between the ships. Like, you know, they go from Quib Quib to Raya to Moray. Like it's, there's a lot of different phonetics and different languages clearly because they're from different civilizations. Um, and I think if I remember correctly, the Idina, which is a very important ship in the Mass Effect lore, that one is actually from Batarians. I <laughs> don't know how they got that one, but interesting that they would have a Batarian ship in their fleet. So I don't think that they have any sh- I bet every race within the Mass Effect universe that's spacefaring has a representation of their ships within the fleet. They've got like a space shuttle also. <laughs> they stole from Earth. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> They've got the fucking lunar lander. Yeah, they couldn't get any of like the modern, like up to date ships, so they got like a lunar lander or a space shuttle, and they're like, "Well, we needed the extra ships, so why not?" Bioware, we're putting this idea out there. <laughs> you can hilarious. make it happen if you want. That would be hilarious. You just see it like a little bit in the background of like those big panning shots of like the fleet. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So so overall, the technology is custom designed for the Corian's needs, which, like I said, from an engineering point of view, it's very impressive. But it's also very far from cutting edge, except for when it comes to the anti-geth weaponry. Oh, yeah. no surprise there. Yeah. So well, it's an important. So part. they have the most advanced anti-geth weapons, I think. And 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 undoubtedly, this this improv kind of um, lifestyle has an impact on how Koreans are living their daily lives. You know, they're they're flying around in ships that are pretty sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's going to do the technology stuff. We're going to talk about the culture of the fleet when we get back. But we have to go thank our patrons. So don't go anywhere. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Message coming in. Patching it through. I am sovereign, and this lorecast is mine. I like the sound of that. All right, so I've been gone for a few weeks, so I got to do some catching up on some of the new patrons and welcome you to the to the Patreon. Uh, Tim S, welcome. Planet Adcon, Katie S, and Larry, all welcome aboard. Thank you for joining the Patreon. Hope you are enjoying all of the benefits you can get. And we've got to shout out our Shepherd tier patrons, Kolkashins, Ed Boy, Kira C, Lieutenant Tosino, and William. Thank you so much for your support. And to everybody who helps support the show, thank you so very much. This, uh, or all of this stuff that you can get for joining the Patreon, you can see at patreon.com slash Mass Effect Lorecast. You check out the shirts, you can check out all the different tiers and the things that you can get. So go check that out. Thanks for being here, everybody. We really do appreciate the support. And let's get on with the rest of the show. Spit it out. Or are you trying to build suspense? You're so dense, sir. Obviously, I do not know as much about human relationships as I thought. All right, here we are, back with the rest of the episode. Now, we need to talk about the culture, right? Low technology, so the results are lower quality of life, probably. That's got to have an effect on the people living here, on the Koreans, right? Yeah, we well, we know from Tally that Korean culture is communal uh, because they they have less to start with. And that means that everything is done in the interest of your fellow shipmates or even the rest of the fleet. So that is the entire point of the Korean pilgrimage. We hear that. Uh, we, we talked about Tally's point of view on that and why she joined Shepard in a previous episode. But there's OK, so there's low resources, there's cramped living and there's they have very vulnerable immune systems. And all of those things together mean that outsiders are generally viewed as a threat. And it's not a wise idea from a safety and security point of view to welcome them, them into the fleet. You know, one thing goes wrong and millions could die. Right. And they don't even have the means or resources necessary to treat outsiders well as guests. Even I'm sure that's kind of embarrassing. Like if you invite somebody to your home, but you're like, yeah, the place is a mess and I don't really have anything for you to eat or drink, but you're welcome to grab a chair, I guess. You know, like that that's, just doesn't feel good. That's kind of the interesting part. You know, they don't they don't have a lot of resources to spare on gifts and, and hosting outsiders. And yet the examples that we see in the lore, primarily the books, uh, is that Koreans want to. They, they want to be a good host. Yeah. But in terms of welcoming, welping, welcoming people into the fleet itself, it's a security risk. Yeah. So every ship is quarantined as soon as it gets there. And any ship that's even approaching the fleet has to have this special passcode. And if they, if they say the wrong thing, 
then they get shot down immediately. So, you know, they're very protective and understandably so, but it also means that they become quite insular. They don't talk to a lot of people who aren't Koreans. They spend a lot of their lives on the fleet. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. That makes so sense. we do get, like I mentioned the books, <clears throat> we get these depictions of how everyday Koreans live. And I don't think that we get them in the game so much because in the games, the people we're meeting are Koreans on pilgrimages. So yeah. they're doing these exceptional things because they need to bring things back to the fleet. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, we're not actually seeing the fleet itself. Right. Um, much like how we talked about with the Batarians, we don't get often to see everyday Batarians because they're kept on their home worlds by an authoritarian regime. So the people who leave are by definition criminals. Uh, and it paints our perception of the Batarians. But, <coughs> excuse me, in the books, we get this um, great, great description from Drew Karpishan, namely Mass Effect Ascension. When Kali Sanders and Jillian Grayson are aboard the Idina, it's a scout ship. So let's go on board the ship. I have an excerpt here from the book uh, that I'd like to read here. And uh, it starts with them entering the equivalent of a marketplace. Mm -hmm. on the Idina, okay. which I found particularly interesting that one ship would have its own marketplace. Right. I've got this but up on the different. screen, too, if people want to read along. Oh, perfect. So uh, so I'll go ahead and narrate it. Um, there were no merchants loudly hawking their wares and no angry shouting of customers and proprietors haggling over prices. Only the soft sounds of people searching through the lockers and bins and the low, good natured conversation of neighbors and friends. So I'll take a pause there because I want to explain what's happening. Basically, there is no marketplace. There are no merchants. There's no trade of currency. They have things that are stored in lockers, probably organized, mm -hmm. and you can just take them. It's the honor system that you'll give it back because eventually you'll need something else. And really, no one has that much space to hoard things anyway. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we'll resume. They were, they were nearing the large freight elevator that would take them up to the next level of the ship when Kali noticed something else. A small desk fashioned from an unidentifiable alien hardwood had been set up in front of a door leading to a supply room off to the side of the cargo hold. A female Corian sat at the desk behind a computer where a line of five or six others stood waiting. Two male Corians stood behind her. The man at the front of the line said something to the woman who punched some information into the computer. He handed her an empty pack, which she passed to one of the men behind her. her uh, he disappeared into the room and then emerged again a few seconds later, handed the pack, now filled, back to the man in line. So Kali asks what what's going on here. And basically, this is how people get essential items, food and medicine, because they're stored separately because they're so critical. Mm -hmm. And it's basically like, you know, they're not this is this is how they handle very, very scarce resources, despite the fact that they're very communal. So Kali asks or I'm sorry, Kali's uh, Companion Hindle asks, what happens when the reserves run low? And a Quarian says, if we manage them carefully, they never will. <laughs> right. We just have to be careful with this stuff in order to make it work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, this is a pretty interesting depiction in my perspective of what what we can understand everyday Quarian life is like. Hey, you need some bread or, you know, uh, let's say that you need a screwdriver. Uh, just go down to the uh, where all the stuff is kept, basically, and rummage around and try and find yeah. what you need. Hopefully there's one there. And if not, you might just have to wait till somebody returns one. Good luck. Exactly. And I can imagine that if you were looking for a specific tool and you found one that was like brand new, it's like winning the jackpot. <laughs> Most yeah. of that stuff is probably going to be very used. So what about where people actually live? Um, we got to see uh, a lot of the parts of one of the ships in like Mass Effect 2, but I don't think we saw any living quarters. We don't. Uh, not that I can remember anyway. I mean, it might be part of the gameplay section where it doesn't really make a big hoopla about it during cutscenes. Um, but on the fleet, the living quarters, two words, it's cramped. Um, on the Idina, there are 700 people there. 
but Alliance ships that, that are the same size would only be home to a crew of about 80. Yeah, so they're packing them in. Yeah, that's almost 10 times more than, than would be stationed there. So they live in tiny cubicles. And it's not like Alliance ships are very comfortable. We know that from Joker and from some of the other crew who remark when they get the Cerberus upgrade that the Normandy becomes much larger mm-hmm. than it was in the first iteration. So it's not like they're living in luxury, but the Corians are really living in tiny cubicles. Yeah, And we get this from another page of the uh, of the Mass Effect Ascension novel, it's page 277. And Cito, the uh, Corian who is is kind of showing them around the Idina, he says, uh, he suddenly darts up ahead and pulls back the curtain to one of his cubicles. He says, this is my living quarter. Notice he says living quarter, uh, but he's excited to show them. And it says, peering inside, Kali saw a cluttered but tidy little room. A sleeping mat was rolled up in one corner. A small cooking stove, a personal vid screen, and a computer rested against one of the side walls. Several swatches of bright orange cloth hung on the walls, the color matching the curtain that was used to block the open entrance. So they they don't have doors. It's not even a door. Yeah, it's just a curtain hanging there. I'm thinking of this almost like what you might find on like a like a private room that you were to book on like a train you know what i mean yeah yeah it it feels like i mean they're on a ship but it it does feel like you get this little room all to yourself and that's it and like that's it like if it's a person (laughs) basically yes And the way that they lay this out in the book, it sounds almost like imagine going into an office building that's like an open office concept where they have these cubicles that are just like all the way down in the middle of a very large rectangular room. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But imagine going in there and it's like, you know, the lights are off and no one's actually working there. But each of the different cubicles has these curtains separating the you know living space from not. And basically everyone has that much space to live in. Right. And multiple people. So fun story. I, on my trip to Norway, we got to go to these museums and we saw the museum for the Flam, which is the first ship that actually got stuck in the ice in the Arctic in order to prove that ice flows over the Arctic for three years. It's a wooden ship. It's about a hundred and something years old. Uh, but each of the 17 people on the ship had their own little room and their beds were so small that like, uh, I couldn't have laid down straight without bending my knees in order to lay in that bed. And they spent three years on this ship. It, it like, that's oh what this, God. what, what you're describing just sounds very similar. Each person had one little room. It has a bed and it had like a desk and a shelf. And that was it. Like, I don't know, three by four foot space. Like that's all. Yeah. And imagine they have to share that space with multiple people. (laughs) Kali asks Sito, you live here alone? And he laughs again at the foolishness of humans. He says, I share this space with my mother and father. My sister lived here for many years, too, until she left on her pilgrimage. Now she's with the crew of the Raya. Interesting, because that's the crew. That's the ship where Tally was born. Um, But she asks where uh, Jillian asks where Sito's parents are now. And he says, my father works on the upper decks as a navigator uh, and my mother is usually part of the civilian council that advises our captain but this week she's volunteering on the live ships she'll be back in two more days Kali says what about all of this orange cloth that's hanging from the walls does this have some kind of meaning and he says it means my mom likes the color orange (laughs) nice yeah we just picked the color (laughs) nothing else Exactly. It's it's just it's kind of funny because as alien as they are, that's a very human response. Right. Yeah. You know, no, yeah it's orange. So we got orange cloth. <laughs> Weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why? Why else would we have that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very interesting. Uh, and then that was just like one person's cubicle. That's just Cito's cubicle. So I think we get a good understanding of what their daily life is like, assuming that the Idina is a typical um, ship for the fleet. But the other thing is that we don't know what is typical because they are so insular that this is why we get very few glances at at, at life inside the fleet. Right. We just There's have to make assumptions based on the little bit of data points that we actually have. 
this is one of the very few times that we even see what it's like because outsiders are generally not allowed in. Uh, but again, on page 275, we get another depiction of what these living quarters are like. Uh, and it says it's crowded with people. Uh, these individuals moved with more purpose than the idly browsing shoppers in the marketplace, though they were still unfailingly courteous and making way for others. As they passed cubicle after cubicle, Kali wondered if the colors and intricate designs sewn onto the cloth curtains that served as the doors had any significance, such as identifying individuals from a specific clan or family. She tried to look for signs of a common or repeating pattern in the artwork that might hint at meaning, but if it was there, it eluded her. Many of the cloth curtains were only partially drawn, and Kali couldn't resist the urge to glance from side to side at each cubicle as they passed, catching occasional glimpses of ordinary Koreans living their everyday lives. Some were cooking on small electric stoves. Others were tidying up their cubicles. Others playing cards or other games or watching personal vid screens. Some were gathered in small groups sitting on the floor while they visited a friend or relative space. A few of them were even sleeping. All of them were wearing their environmental suits. And Hindle, her companion, asks, are they wearing their suits because, you know, we're aliens and we're here? And... Sito, the Korean says, we rarely take off our environmental suits except in the most private settings or intimate encounters. So that raises the question about the bathroom situation. How does that work? <laughs> so they actually go into that shortly thereafter. And Kali asks the same question to which Sito says, we have bathrooms and showers in the lower decks. And these are actually sealed and sterile. It is one of the few places where we feel comfortable removing our suits. And Jillian, who is on the autism spectrum in the book, she asks, what about when you're not on a Korean ship? And most humans, I think her, her companions, Kali and Hindle, both are kind of uncomfortable at this line of questioning. Yeah, but like, it it's a little seem personal, like the but okay. Right. It doesn't seem like the Koreans mind too much because he just answers it straight. Sido says, our suits are equipped to store several days worth of waste and sealed compartments between the inner and outer layer. The suit can then be flushed, discharging the waste into any common sanitation facility like the toilet on your shuttle without exposing the wearer to outside contaminants. I mean, that's that's a good functional answer, but it's also kind of gross to imagine them all walking around with like pee pee poopy suits. <laughs> yeah, pee pee poopy. Is that why you look a little more inflated today? <laughs> pee pee poopy. You got you got a pee pee poopy suit there, huh, buddy? <laughs> got to got to flush that out. Literally looks like they deflate. You know, they go to the bathroom and they've come back. That wow, you're thinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't want to think about it. Um, but the whole <clears throat> the whole not taking off their suit thing. It's not just about bathroom. It's not just about protecting against infection. We learn that it's intrinsically linked to the low quality of components that are on these ships, on these salvaged, rebuilt vessels. So that's why I looped this in to the Migrant Fleet episode, because it can all be traced back to the Migrant Fleet and how it's salvaged um, and, and basically unreliable ships. It even says this in Mass Effect Ascension in the same breath. Uh, another Corian says, we work hard to maintain our ships, but the chance of a hull breach or engine leak, remote, as, remote though it may be, is something we, may constant, we must be constantly and acutely aware of. On the surface, her explanation made sense, but Kali suspected there was more to it. Hull breaches and engine leaks would indeed be extremely rare, even in older, run-down vessels. And simple air quality monitors combined with element zero detectors could alert people on board to don their suits in the event of an emergency long before any serious harm was done to them. It was quite likely wearing the Envira suits had become a deeply ingrained tradition, a custom born from the inescapable lack of privacy on the overpopulated ships the masks and layers of material could very well be a physical, emotional, and psychological buffer in a society where solitude was virtually impossible to find. Yeah, so, it, I mean, this whole situation has sweeping effects on their, uh, on their culture and even their psyche, the way they interact with the world at all. It, I mean, how could it not? Yeah, it's a constant consideration, you know, and I, I think... Kali is supposed to be the one who viewer or readers relate to the most. So this is, you know, how we're supposed to perceive it the way that, that Kali is. Um, but basically, I think that she agrees and I agree with with that perception that it's 
the physical is having psychological ramifications and that is manifesting in the way that Koreans socialize. It's becoming part of their culture. It's literally dictating the way they go about things just because they've had to deal with, you know, retrofitted, salvaged, rebuilt things for so long. It's interesting too, she mentions the air filters because that's how Tally's mother passed away. The microbial filter for one of the ships faltered and an infection swept through the populace. And then her mom got sick and died. Yeah, yeah, that'll do it. Um, so so uh, are we ready to move on to the final the final point? Yeah, that kind of ties in perfectly because the, the environmental suits, they're, they're not just dictating how people go about their current lives, but it's impacting socializing, socializing privacy and how they're deciding things for their own future. Yeah. So so let's talk about the future of the fleet. Fourth point from your intro. Um, so how does how exactly does the poverty dictate where they're going? Like there's the geth conflict. There's the being cramped and limited and having to do with minimal amounts of stuff. Does this is this pushing them more towards war? Is this pushing them more towards uh, looking for a home more desperately? Like how does how does this affect things? I think tangentially, like, you know, kind of in a second or third degree of separation, yes, because it's been hundreds of years, so they've gotten used to it. But here's the other part. The fleet itself is dying. And I don't mean this hyperbolically like some of the admirals seem to say during Mass Effect 2. I actually mean the fleet is dying, and unless you really digged into the lore in Mass Effect, this is what I was saying earlier, you probably missed. And it's so important to the entire development of understanding why the Koreans are pushing for war against the Geth, why Tally feels between a rock and a hard place like she does throughout Mass Effect 2 and 3. And, and so let's let's go to Mass Effect Ascension, page 296. The captain of the Idina, Captain Isan Mal Vas Idina, tells Kali Sanders verbatim, Fortunately, Maul seemed willing to be completely candid. He says, the migrant fleet is dying. It is a long, slow, almost invisible death, but the facts are undeniable. We are nearing a time of crisis for our species. In another 80 or 90 years, our population will be too large for our ships to support. But wait, don't, isn't there like a population control? How does, how can that happen? They do have population control to make sure they don't have too many people, but it's not about the number of people or controlling that number. It's about the entropy eating the ships themselves. So they could keep the same amount of people, right? right. But without new ships, it, they're still a problem. Exactly. And I don't think that it's ethical to suggest that they kill off some Corians to compensate for the dying ships. Right. Or steal and, and, other people's ships and create conflict. Both of those are bad ideas. And the reason I'm making such a big deal about this is, look, we have a definitive timeline here, 80 or 90 years that they have forecasted for when the ships will really start dying off and there's nothing they can do to repair them, to retrofit them, and they won't be able to get more ships in enough time to prevent a crisis. So this is the first time that I remember seeing in the lore in no uncertain terms that they that the Korean fleet is dying. We heard this during the game, you know, where Korean fleet's dying, we're in a very rock and a hard place, but it was never explained why. And now we have a very specific fire that's being lit under the Koreans' ass, right? And uh -huh. this is propelling them to action. And it's <laughs> the fire under their ass is making everything smell like poop because they got the poop in the suits. And <laughs> um, okay, so so here's the next paragraph from what Captain Maul is saying. He says our population is stable, but the fleet is not. Our ships continue to age and break down faster than we can replace or repair them. Little by little, we are running out of livable space. Yet neither the Conclave nor the Admiralty are willing to take action. I fear that by the time they finally realize something drastic must be done, it will be too little too late to stem the tide. Right, right. So they need a, a home world. They need new ships. I mean, I guess the other option is eventually the fleet disintegrates and they all just end up as refugees other places, which that also sounds terrible. Ironically, I mean, that's what, kind of what the fleet is, right? It's like a mobile refugee camp. Yeah, um, yeah. But in, in this case, there wouldn't be a 
actual central camp. It would be individuals in wherever, whatever worlds they end up in. And that's assuming that the worlds are willing to take them. So yeah. time is ticking and Koreans have very specific needs for home worlds that they can make their own. And most of those discovered worlds are already inhabited. So with the council refusing to assist them, this really is a crisis. There is a definitive deadline for when they need to have found a permanent solution. And there's all these things that are stacked against them. And it's also why some of the Korean admirals seem so willing and ready to go to war with the Geth come Mass Effect 2 and Tally's loyalty mission. I always kind of thought when I was playing through the games and I never read this book, that it kind of jumped out of nowhere almost between Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 2. Like why are the Koreans all of a sudden just wanting to up and go to war when they're already in a very vulnerable state? Right. Yeah. 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 Like, oh, this is just it, sudden. What, what's the, what's the story behind it? Well, I guess this is the story behind it. Exactly. And it wasn't like they had this monumental governmental shift in how things were dictated. This is the same form of government that they had. And it's not like there was some military coup. The, the Admiralty Board does have co-equal power in some regards to the conclave, their civilian, uh, force but it kind of jumped out at me as like okay this kind of feels like narrative shoving down your throat but keep in mind that this mass effect ascension book was kind of meant to be the prelude to mass effect 2 yeah you were supposed yeah. to read this right so they already had this in mass mind as the reason why that happened in the game so yes exactly yeah. so this is like i said this gives us some perspective as to why the admirals are using tally as this pawn in the trial later we'll talk about in tally's own episode um but here's another excerpt from mass effect ascension what does this have to do with me kali wanted to know why are they asking me all these questions about the geth and the reapers she was on she was Te basically testifying to the Admiralty Board in something similar to what Tally has to go through in her trial, except Kali was answering questions because she worked on AI for the Alliance. And they wanted to understand more about AI so that they could potentially defeat the Geth mm -hmm. in the coming war. Uh, and then Maul says, there's a small but growing coalition of ship captains who believe we must take immediate action if the Korean nation is to survive. Yeah. So I understand now why it seems so many Koreans are willing to go to war. They're probably reluctant, but it's, I, I bet they feel like they don't have a choice. Yeah, I mean, they don't seem to. <laughs> it seems like there's just limited resources and it's just going to get worse. So they have to do something. Exactly. So sequentially, this is all taking place before we go to the migrant fleet for Tally's trial in Mass Effect 2. It's taking place before then. And that's when we hear this from the admirals. We have a couple of clips here. The first one is from Admiral Shalaran. Nobody could have foreseen. There seem to be some other arguments going on among the admirals. You call it that? Yes, the guest presence makes this a touchy issue. The Admiralty Board is trying to determine whether to focus on colonial development or attempt to retake the home world. You're thinking of war with the Geth? I am not, Tali, but others are. I know the migrant fleet is formidable, but even you can't take on the Geth. We grow tired of wandering the stars, Shepard. We want our world back. We have paid enough for our mistake. I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm telling you which way the wind is blowing. And then there's this one. It's right, like but before, with more oh, before we go, go into that one, go ahead. I had a I had a comment to make. She says, "We're want we grow tired of wandering the stars, Shepard." That is a lot different from what Captain Maul tells Kali. We grow tired of wandering the stars. Okay, so you've just made this, mm, I don't want to wander around anymore. <laughs> I'm just tired, guys. <laughs> right. I understand that this is, you know, a detail that Captain Maul tells Kali is probably one of utmost um, security clearance. You know what I mean? He probably shouldn't have told her that. Uh, but at the same level, how do they expect... Shepard and Tally to understand why they're pushing for war if it makes it look like it's such for a frivolous reason. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it seems like there's a lot to communicate about the situation also. And I don't know. There's complexity in this, right? Like on one, on the one hand, you can say emotionally, we're tired of this, but that, that means so much more. 
like we're tired for all of these reasons. These things are wearing us out, right? Like it's there's a lot more. Right. Maybe maybe she felt like it would take too long to explain to Shepard, but it's simply for the player, for the player's point of view. I did not understand why it was so necessary that they would go to war against the Geth when uh, we're tired of wandering the stars. We want our homeworld back. Yeah. Okay. That's that's abstract. Right. Right. Whereas what Maul tells Kali Sanders, that's a concrete reason. You know, we have done these these uh, strategic population forecasts, and our data suggests that in eighty or ninety years we will have entropy beyond control. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a very tangible, like, well, we definitely need to do something kind of reason. And it would have it probably would have resonated more with Shepard, I would assume, than just, Mm -hmm. you know, we're tired of wandering the stars. But there's legitimacy behind that point, too. You're like, yeah, we've been out here. This is a very difficult lifestyle and we're ready to be done with it. I'm sure that's a piece of it, too. Let's hear uh, Admiral Han Gerl's thoughts. He is the leader of the. heavy fleet, the military arm. Uh, so keep that in mind when we listen to what he has to say. Yeah. It sounds like we're dealing with more politics than just Tally bringing back equipment. <laughs> you noticed that, did you? Tally's father wasn't just running weapons tests on the Geth for fun. He was looking for something to give us an edge when we attacked the Geth in full-scale war. I know father wanted to retake the homeworld someday, but are we that close? I don't know, kid. We almost had the vote. We just need to give people hope for victory. I hope the Quarian people find some place to live, Admiral. But it sounds like you're playing with fire. We're too comfortable now, Shepard. We've got the largest fleet in the galaxy and we just ride around doing nothing. We might need that fleet to help fight the Reapers, Admiral. Then we need a world to shelter our non-combatants while we do it. It's definitely a rock and a hard place kind of situation, right? Especially with the Reapers being involved. Like, definitely. Like, they could use our firepower to fight against the Reapers, obviously. And if we don't take care of the Reapers, there won't be any homeworlds to go to or people surviving to go to homeworlds. <laughs> you know, like, but yes. we, we're kind of on a time frame here and we really got to do something about this. So. Right. This is not child's play. This isn't an ideological difference. There is an existential threat. And so I understand why now they, they approach this with urgency. But the things that they tell Shepard and us, the player, in Mass Effect 2 are not concrete arguments for the urgency that they treat this with. Right. Right. But the book does a way yeah. better job of showing the player why. I also have to wonder if the, the details of like the longevity of the fleet are more uh, personal secret kind of information that they yes. don't want to share out externally. And so even though it's a good justification, it's like we really just want to keep that to ourselves. And that makes complete sense, especially when you consider that in Mass Effect 2, Shepard is part of Cerberus, a pro-human yeah. supremacist group that just... Not that long ago, Cerberus had launched an attack on one of the ships in the migrant fleet. So it's kind of remarkable that they even let Shepard on board anyway. <laughs> Especially with what Tally was accused of, of sending Geth parts back to the fleet. And then Tally shows up for her trial in a Cerberus escort vessel. They, mu- I mean, she was probably already convicted before she s- even spoke. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. from that perspective alone. Right. So... You're right. That detail, I'm not at all surprised that they didn't tell Shepard that. Shepard's working for, like, an avowed terrorist enemy of theirs. So why would they tell them that? Um, And I wonder if Tally knew it. Because, remember, her father was an admiral. So maybe he didn't tell her because he didn't want to scare her. Right. It may not be the kind of thing that's in common knowledge. It's just something that the leadership understands is, is a limitation. Yes. Yeah. And De Musica has a great point about the fleet here. She uh, says, or he, I'm sorry, I don't know which pronouns he used. De Musica says, love how he's so concerned about the non-combatants here, but in Mass Effect 3, he's all armed the live ships with cannons and turned them into dreadnoughts. Yeah, he's a typical hawk. He's a war hawk for sure. And so this is a good explanation and a good example of how some of the arguments from the Turian Admiralty or Turian Corian Admiralty are flipped on their head come Mass Effect 3. But as for Mass Effect 2, this isn't the only proposed solution 
about you know uh, going to war with the Geth and taking back Rannoch. This is not the only solution. There's one that unless you read Mass Effect Ascension or unless you paid very, very close attention to the dialogue in Mass Effect 2, you probably didn't know about. Here's something that Captain Maul tells Kali Sanders. We have proposed that several of the fleet's largest vessels be equipped for long distance voyages. In one of those conversations that we just played, Tom, I can't remember if it was in the bite that we played or maybe it's a little bit outside the bite. They actually tell Shepard that they're currently focused on colonial uh, development. Hmm. This is what's going on. The Koreans are send a team deep into uncharted space to go find new worlds, knowing that they will not be able to contact them for quite some time. And it just so happens that Jillian Grayson, a human, a very gifted biotic, is sent along with a Corian exploratory crew because she's trying to avoid the clutches of Cerberus. But this is interesting because they've made contingency plans. It's not just about going to war with the Geth. And it also means that, you know, uh, I think last week we were talking about Tally's death and how all the Corians were dead. I, I misspoke. There are Corians on the Citadel and Omega here and there, little patches of Corians who are alive after that. But this is important to keep in mind, too, that not all of the Corians are actually dead if the Geth win the Geth War and take out the migrant fleet. Right. There is a decent contingency out on colonial exploratory missions right we, we talked about how the mass effect relays only connect you to certain places and there's a lot of the galaxy that's still far from those so it sounds like they're they're moving into those darker areas of space in a sense which means that they're probably more sheltered if they've found some of those locations and planted some colonies Right. Yes, exactly. So it could be this could be the future of the Koreans. This is why I wanted to you know, dedicate its own segment to this part, because even if they are wiped out by the Reapers or the Geth, maybe this some of these colonial development projects that they were launching, maybe they're not found. And of course, this part of this is addressed in the third book, which I don't want to get into quite yet. We'll have to cover that at a later time. But the whole conversation between Captain Maul and Kali Sanders, immediately after that, the fleet is infiltrated and attacked by Cerberus. They're looking for Jillian. Although they ultimately fend off Cerberus, the fleet does, now everyone on the fleet realizes that they're even more vulnerable than they thought they were. And this adds even more urgency behind finding a permanent solution for a homeworld. And so I want people to keep this in mind when we play through Mass Effect 2 and 3. This is why we hear the urgency from the admirals and it starts to make sense. It starts to not come out of left field so much. Yeah. Especially when we consider everything that's happened leading up to it and that there's top level intel within the leadership of the Koreans that says the fleet has an expiration date. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's complex. It's a complex situation. But you, like you can tell this was very well thought out by the writers. Um, Absolutely. Because the pieces all come together. They all kind of make sense. So very I feel cool like stuff. Charlie Day in front of the conspiracy board with the different, <laughs> you know, the cork board with the red right. string, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is very cool. So uh, this helps set up some more conversation about Tally as well, because we have a little bit more insight into the world she came from. So this will be good. Exactly. Yeah. Well, but so next week we'll be talking about Tally and Mass Effect 2. And part of that is a, a large part of that is the uh, loyalty mission where we go and advocate for Tally during her trial. Yeah. So. Cool stuff. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I'm so glad everybody's here for the live stream. And thank you for continuing to listen to our show. And uh, Sam, I know you've been doing some wacky stuff on stream. Uh, and your dad got to watch your weird That's modded right. playthrough. Like, what? <laughs> Yeah, so that's right. Um, my dad was watching uh, me play Mass Effect Randomized, which is probably not the best introduction to Mass Effect I could have given him. Uh, he was a little bit lost, but I've been doing live dad reaction on, on a stream of mine, and I'm thinking of doing it again. Uh, it was hilarious. I have like a dad cam up where you uh -huh. can see his reaction. I gave him a mic so he can talk to, um, but it would be amazing. It would be amazing to have him make the decisions and to see what happens. 
I've thought about that too. Starting a new playthrough that's yeah. not randomized, you know. And, yeah, I did that with my mom in Skyrim, that. and it's like it just blows my mind the kinds of things that she decides. Well, yeah, I'm just gonna trust this guy. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, he seems like a nice guy. Let's just go with it. <laughs> I'm like, well, all right, or murder that guy. He stole a thing from you. Kill him. And wow. I'm like, oh, really? We're just gonna murder him? That's that's the solution. <laughs> unhinged i'd love to see it um yeah, yeah so yeah maybe i'll do that but i'm also considering starting my first bioshock playthrough ever uh and i'll do that on stream so if you're curious about any of that uh go ahead and go over to my twitch page at n7 legend give me a follow and i typically put out notices about my streams on twitter at the same handle yeah or x or whatever i'm not calling it oh god <laughs> don't follow me on x Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Of course, this show is on uh, Robots Radio's YouTube or I'm sorry, it's on our it's on our Mass Effect YouTube. It's on the Robots Radio Twitch channel. So that's also where I stream games and things on occasion. So if you want to come hang out with me, that's a place you can do that as well. And of course, RobotsRadio.net for all the different shows that I do, all the other shows from all the different hosts on the network. Lots of awesome stuff for you to check out if you're interested. So go check that stuff out. And until next time, stay safe out there. The universe is a dangerous place. We'll see you later. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Mass Effect Lorecast. We'd love to hear your opinion and thoughts on the lore of Mass Effect. Reach out to us on Twitter at Mass Effect Cast or check out the Robots Radio Discord. Also, you can send us an email at Mass Effect Lorecast at gmail.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.